Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. Well, today, Hugh, we're going to be talking about someone who emblematizes one of my favorite sentence that, sentences that you've ever written. And this is in our book, uh, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History. And uh, the qu- quote is, uh, there's power in being the king who sits upon the throne, but also power in being the throne upon whom the king sits. Ah, oh, yeah, about James I and VI. And so this was as true in the court of James I and VI as it was in the true of the court of Emperor Ai in Han Dynasty China in 22 BC. And so today we're going to be talking about someone who in only 21 years of life rose from being a sort of low-level official to being one of the most powerful people in China, uh, all by becoming the favorite of the emperor. And their passion was so renowned that it led to the creation of what remains until today a Chinese idiomatic expression for homosexuality. But we'll also be talking about the prevailing bisexuality of the Han Dynasty court, the reception culture of this story, both in China and outside it then and now, and how people in both China and the West have adopted this story and used it for their own means. Well, you know that favorites are my favorite. Well, we have a very good favorite today. Um, So stories of Chinese imperial sodomy abounded in accounts written by early European travelers to the Orient. And this was part of a dynamic in which the Orient was depicted as feminized and decadent and ripe for both penetration and moral enforcement by Europeans. Jesuit missionaries, as was their wont, were particularly appalled. Uh, Here are some Jesuit missionaries who are quoted in Brett Hinch's book, Passions of the Cut Sleeve which is one of the classic academics texts on this in English and which is one of the primary sources uh, for this episode, or one of the main sources for this episode, rather. Quote, the greatest fault we do find among the Chinese is sodomy, a vice very common in the meaner sort and nothing strange among the best, end quote. Another one, quote, public streets full of boys got up like prostitutes, gallantly dressed and made up with rouge-like women. These miserable men are initiated into this terrible vice, end quote. <laughs> Sounds like Jack Saul. Yeah, right. So Hinch argues that a, quote, historical tradition of homosexuality in China dates back to at least the Bronze Age, end quote, and reconstructs this through a study of classical literature. But one of our struggles here is that terminology becomes difficult. Homosexuality, as we know, doesn't just mean same-sex love or same-sex eroticism. It has a specific meaning and term history and, and relationship to specific social forms that's hard to shake. Hinch tries his level best, saying that, quote, rather than studying homosexuals or homosexuality, this book concentrates on reconstructing the Chinese homosexual traditions, end quote, and focuses on literature rather than social history, given an absence of sources. Also, he offers this history explicitly as denaturalizing for Western readers. He writes, quote, by carefully examining the sexuality of a people divided from us by time and place, we can better understand and question the caprice implicit in our own sexual and social conventions, end quote. And so this fits into a longer tradition of um, gays looking to various kinds of others for a kind of denaturalization, simultaneous denaturalization of Western social and sexual mores um, and uh, prohibitions on homosexuality. Um, and also, this is a naturalizing claim, right? The, the claim is that it's everyone other than us 
who has always been like this, and thus we have always been. Um, so, so be, by by denaturalization, you mean like it's a claim that he's make, he's telling this story in, in order to say to a Western audience, um, the 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 world that you understand, the system you live under, is not necessarily natural. Things are different yes. in other places. Things are different in other places. Things are different in other times. And this is a major drive behind the whole gay relationship to um, all kinds of different racialized others. This is one of the main functions of that relationship. Um, right. I remember, I remember you talking the um, Lawrence for Arabia episode, T. Lawrence episode, about how um, how he sort of saw in um, Arab culture a sort of more, in his mind, more natural way of being, which included homosexuality. And not so repressed. Right. And this is something that I think, I mean, I don't want to make an equivalence between uh, Brett Hinch and T. Lawrence. And this episode is not about Brett Hinch, bad gay. Um, but I do think it's important to be at least aware or critical of what that tradition has often looked like and what the dynamics of power and knowledge exchange in that tradition have often been. Um, and towards that, there's a sort of interesting controversy around this book that I think we need to mention uh, before we can go any further. So um, Hinch really presents the book as this untold story or recovery and translation of all of these different sources. Um, and it is in English. But uh, in the 1980s, an activist known as Sam Shasha uh, or Xiaoming Shong, those are both pen names, uh, living in Hong Kong started publishing on gay liberation. Um, and in 1984, six years before uh, Passions of the Cut Sleeve, he publishes a book called History of Homosexuality in China, uh, which has never been translated, unfortunately. And uh, here's a quote from an interview with him, which was conducted by Mark McClelland and was published in the journal Intersections, History and Culture in the Asian Context. When a friend passed on a copy of Passions of the Cut Sleeve in 1990, I went through the chapters thoroughly and found that the contents and organization of his book were very similar to mine. So I wrote to the publisher, enclosing a copy of my book and stating that Hinch had likely infringed on my intellectual property rights. However, they claimed that Hinch had already finished his manuscript before he saw my book and that the few references he does make to my work were added later. But that doesn't explain the broad similarities in the arrangement of chapters and even the paragraphs, the analysis, and the deductions and the conclusions which appear throughout the book. Um, he goes on to write, I wonder if Hinch really did not know of the existence of my book during his research on gay Chinese history as he claims. I never received any formal apology or compensation from either author or publisher. What is really annoying about this whole thing is the claims made by Hinch and his colleagues who endorsed the book that he was presenting this information and analysis for the first time. I had already been making this material available in Chinese since 1980. It's like, if it isn't written in English, it just doesn't count, end quote. These are serious allegations, um, and we need to at least present them to our listeners, I think, even if I'm not capable because of my ignorance and inability to read Chinese of parsing the accuracy of the allegations. Um, and unfortunately, because of that ignorance, I'm also not able to tell you the story from Sam Shasha's narrative or to put Sam Shasha's narrative into conversation with Hinch's narrative or to judge whether Hinch's narrative is constructed from Sam Shasha's narrative. So I just have to rely on Hinch here. Okay, and the yeah. only thing that I can tell you on that is that at least Sam Shasha suggests that Hinch has his facts and his readings right. 
Yeah, because of the same as says he, he claims. Yeah, and I really wish I could tell you more about this, but but I think at least we had to name that. Um, and the other thing that I will say is to plea to publishers to please publish a translation of Sam Shasha's 1997 revision of his 1984 history of homosexuality in China. Um, I can't imagine many books that I would like to read more. Um, and um, I think it's really important that we start to apprehend global histories of sexuality, not only from Western and white scholars and sort of quote unquote area studies specialists um, researching them in this kind of anthropological or ethnographic tradition that has a lot of colonial legacies and hangovers and, and, and structures of power built into it. Um, but instead to actually read what activist historians have been writing in these places. Um, you know, Sam Shasha seems to me to be exactly in the tradition of so many of the like 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even today, activist historians that we're often sort of citing and talking about and, and trying to put ourselves in conversation with on this show. Um, and I think it's really a shame that because publishers are, well, I don't know, it's, it's they're, they're, they're often timid um, and scared and, and not uh, interested in works in translation. And it's a real shame that we can't be in dialogue with this person who seems to have been an extremely important activist for gay liberation in Hong Kong um, and to have written a book that, um, and we'll talk a little bit later about a review of the book written by two other scholars. The review is in English, so I can talk about the review, uh, but a book that seems to make a really um, astonishingly wide variety of arguments based on a vast swath of, vast swaths of evidence. Um, and that's certainly worth, I think, reading and thinking about and discussing on its own. Another thing uh, just to say here is that um, as uh, James Seymour points out in his review of Passions of the Cut Sleeve, um, Hinch is someone who is often attributing all animus or the vast majority of animus against same-sex erotic contact in China to Western influence. Again, this is not a historical claim I'm able to parse. It's certainly one that Seymour seems to be somewhat suspicious of. Um, and my point here is not to trash uh, Brett Hinch or his book, uh, but it's to get at some of the complications of the subject and to at least have a conversation about the way that these histories are mobilized inside the academy and out. Um, and I don't think it's impossible to write history across difference. Hinch and his narrative is actually very good about respecting difference. Uh, but instead, I think this is just to have a frank conversation about how academic balances of power work and who ends up owning certain stories and how publishing in English can make something the source, even when it's not the only source or the first source. Mm -hmm. So now let's cut back uh, many, many long years ago to Han Dynasty China. It's uh, 206 BC. Um, the Han Dynasty was sort of roughly contiguous with uh, the Golden Age of, of Rome. Um, very, very roughly, as with always in classical history, you say roughly and mean, you know, <laughs> gaps of two or 300 years that in modern history are entirely different specialties, right? Um, but the Han takeover from a period of instability after the collapse of the Zhou dynasty with the brief one generation interennium of the Qin dynasty. And Hinch points out that, uh, quote, the vast majority of Han records concern the lives of rulers and so our view of homosexuality during the Han period pertains almost exclusively to the male loves of the emperors, end quote. 
Hinge provides a chart of the first 10 Han emperors with their male favorites. So I'm going to read them out to you now with the emperor listed first and the favorite or favorites listed second. Gao and Jiru, Hui and Hongru, Wen and Deng Tong, Zhao Tan and Beigong Boju, Jing and Zhou Ren, Wu and Han Yan, Han Yue and Li Yanyan, Zhao and Jin Xiang, Zhuan and Zhang Pengzhu, Yuan and Hong Gong and Xi Jian, Cheng and Zhang Fang and Chun Yu Zhang, and the subjects of our story, Ai and Dong Shan. So that's a lot of favorites. And given, um, as Hinch points out, that all of these relationships were described openly by court recorders and in official histories, um, our image of court, court sexuality in the Han Dynasty is one where male favorites and same-sex affairs are the subject of open discussion, jokes, satire, poetry, and even history. Um, and he quotes and translates the court historian uh, Sima Qian. Um, all of the uh, ancient Chinese documents that I'm quoting here are translated by and as cited in Hinch's book, unless I tell you otherwise, um, as saying, quote, those who served the ruler and succeeded in delighting his ears and eyes, those who caught their Lord's fancy and won his favor and intimacy did not only through the power of lust and love, each had certain abilities in which he excelled. Thus, I made the biographies of the emperor's male favorites. No amount of faithful service can be compared to being liked by your superiors, end quote. Um, writing of the favorite of Emperor Gao Tzu, uh, the two favorites of Emperor Gao Tzu, he, uh, this uh, Sima Chan, the court historian, writes, quote, Neither Ji nor Hong had any particular talent or ability. Both won prominence simply by their looks, end quote. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So these favorites had a huge amount of power, and one of the main forms of their power was the power to determine who could access the emperor. In any kind of um, highly elaborate court society, access to power is power, right? If you can get the emperor's ear, you have a much higher chance of achieving your political goal. Um, and who better to control that than the emperor's uh, lovely young twink? Um, and so here's, uh, as a little preview, uh, the story of the favorite Deng Tong, uh, just to show you how much power you could get so quickly and what some of the dangers of that were. So Deng Tong uh, started out as a lowly boatman and then was, uh, quote, showered with gifts by the emperor until his fortune amounted to tens of billions of cash and he had been promoted to the post of superior lord, end quote. Tens, tens of billions of what? Tens of billions of coins. Now, Hinch points out that this may be an exaggeration. Uh, it might not have actually been tens of billions, but it certainly would have been vast sums. Um, to continue... Quote, the emperor from time to time even paid visits to Deng Tong's home to amuse himself there, end quote. I think we all know what kinds <laughs> of amusements. Yeah, nice game of cards. I think they were playing leapfrog. Um, <laughs> a fortune teller uh, then predicted that Tong would become poor and die of starvation. And the emperor wanted to make sure this never happened. And so the emperor gave him, as one does, an entire uh, copper-rich mountain range and the mining rights to that mountain range. Wow. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah, mineral um, rights. That's a, that's a nice uh, little nest egg. Great tracts of land. Um, but after the emperor died, his jealous heirs ended up charging a Deng Tong with embezzlement 
and had his fortune seized. And as is the tradition of stories involving fortune tellers, the they fortune right. teller was right. Yeah. He did indeed die poor and alone. Um, and so Hinch writes, uh, quote, by forming an emotional bond with the ruler, a favorite could reap huge rewards. The more flamboyant his devotion, the greater his influence, end quote. And this flamboyant devotion could include licking the ulcers and sucking the tumors of an old, sick, ailing emperor. Oh, no kink shaming, but I'm, that's too much. And this is something that Deng Tong uh, was apparently known for having done. And this is how some of the jealousy began, is that the family was jealous of this person who was gaining all this influence by, by licking the ailing emperor's ulcers. They, they were jealous of the, the ulcer licker. They were jealous of the ulcer liquor because the ulcer liquor was being granted enormous tracts of uh, mining rights and also was demonstrating a form of devotion that, that usurped the familial. Yeah, but I, th- I feel like if you, if, if you were to, um, to lick and suck uh, King Charles's ulcers in this day and age, you deserve the mining rights to a whole tract of mountain range. <laughs> I hope that I hope that Camilla has been granted vast <laughs> copper rich <laughs> tracts of I don't know where Wales I don't know someplace. Um, anyway, um, yeah. So th- this is also, uh, as we can see, something that's a kind of status that can be very, very fickle um, if you end up in the in the wrong way. And so uh, in the Han court, uh, this new vocabulary emerges to describe homosexuality. And the, the, the term is Ning Xing, which translates to um, those obtaining favor through artful flattery. And so one interesting thing is that this pattern resembles a lot of the upper class or aristocratic homosexualities we've seen on this show, right? Where the higher status older man plays the penetrative role. Um, in the Han Dynasty, actually, it was often eunuchs who were favored as favorites because they were assumed to be permanently passive and they couldn't usurp too much power. That's interesting but, that, that, that penetration is seen as the form of usurping power. Yes. But as always, um, there are exceptions to this. And as one of the interesting things about Dong Shan is that actually he has a wife and children uh, while the emperor does not. And that makes him a particularly dangerous threat to the imperial lineage, as we will see. Hmm. So, Emperor Ai was born in 25 BC, and he was not actually originally set to be emperor, uh, but after impressing Emperor Cheng in 8 BC, was named the crown prince, and then ascended to the throne in 5 BC at the age of 20. Uh, Like a lot of gays, he was highly susceptible to control by powerful women. His, His grandmother, consort Fu, was named Grand Empress Dowager, Alongside the Empress uh, Wang Zhengjun, who was Cheng's mother, the Empress Zhao, Fei Yan, who was Cheng's wife, and Consort Ding, who was Ai's mother. So this meant that there were four extremely powerful empresses behind the throne, none of whom liked each other very much. Um, and this led to a lot of uh, court instability and court intrigue. At one point, Consort Fu had a rival accused of witchcraft, and she was forced to kill herself. Oh, bloody hell. Um, so, meanwhile, in 22 BC, Dongshan is born to a minor imperial official, and by his teens was a sort of minor, minor secretary. Um, he became an imperial attendant and then the director of the emperor's horses, 
And by the age of 18, he was a favorite of the emperor. So quoting Hinch's translation of the records of the Han, quote, he was a person whose beauty incited admiration. Emperor Ai gazed at him and spoke of Dongshan's deportment and appearance. Because of this, Dongshan spoke with the emperor. Thus began his favor. Dongshan's favors increased daily. He held high office and each year was granted 10,000 picules of grain. His honors alarmed the court, end quote. So one pickle of grain is about 60 kilos. So this is huge quantities of, of grain and riches along with it. Yeah, presumably even more valuable then. And he and his wife were both given permission to enter and leave the palace whenever they wanted, which was a big deal. And when they entered and left the palace, they didn't have to travel far because the emperor built them a house so fancy it rivaled the imperial palace right next door to the main palace complex. And gave Dongshan nicer weapons than the emperor himself used, nicer jewels than the emperor himself used, and imperial burial tools, and a grave site next to the emperor, and an aristocratic title, which was achieved through some subterfuge. Um, there were two uh, sort of spies who reported that a prince was using witchcraft, and so he was demoted to a commoner and committed suicide. And this made space in the aristocracy for Dongshan, but also the two people who had reported on the prince. Nice work if you can get it. Um, so going back to uh, the story in the records of the Han, quote, Dong was good at seducing by holding fast. Every time he was granted a leave of absence, he turned it down. The emperor entailed Dongshan's father as the Marquis of Guanney. Everyone in Dongshan's household, down to his slaves, received grants from the emperor. The prime minister repeatedly remonstrated that because of Dongshan, the regulations of the state were in chaos, end quote. Dongshan was actually even able to block a land reform proposal, uh, which would have benefited the masses by um, limiting land ownership, and he blocked that to preserve his own very suddenly acquired wealth. So he's sort of a master landlord at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, just... And, and him and all of his, all the people in his family, like all of the relatives, everyone is being given posts and various people within the clan are sort of gaining power in the court writ large, which is part of how this court system works like many others. You know, you get um, within the broader dynasty, there's different groups that are fighting for more or less power within the court system um, and more or less favor within the court system. Uh, so it's very much like the um, Yorgos Lanthinos, um film, The Favourite, with Queen Anne, and then it's not just Queen Anne's, these women who are competing to be her favourite, but also their husbands and this wider sort of politics around The Favourite. Absolutely, and, and with this incredibly personalised politics being then connected to much broader political goals. Yeah. And you know, successful imperial management on its own terms in this kind of court system uh, are the leaders who are able to kind of break through the personal politics and make political decisions that, if not overcome these divisions, then aren't entirely bogged down in them. Um, and emperors like I, who are sort of weaker emperors, are the ones who often, or like Queen Anne in the film, frankly, are often ones who end up making these very consequential decisions based on this kind of internal court politics or, or, or based on, you know, what, what twink they think is pretty that day. Yeah. 
So the rapid rise to power of Dongshan alarmed a lot of palace officials, and several objected to what was happening, and the people who objected were all punished for that objection. So one year after the emperor met Dongsheng, uh, the head secretary of the palace, Zheng Gong, uh, objected to how much uh, money Dongshan was getting, and he was arrested and died in prison. Um, then Sun Bao, the governor of the capital, tried to intervene to get Zheng out of jail, and he got demoted. When uh, the director of the imperial uh, armory, Wu Zhanglong, was ordered to give Dong the fancy weapons, he said no and was demoted. And then, again, this is only two years after, um, after Dong and the emperor met, the emperor's prime minister, Wang Jia, tried to intervene and stop Dong from being named a noble. And he was imprisoned and committed suicide in prison. And so, again, two years after Emperor Ai meets Dong, he's favoring him over his own prime minister and his own uncle, Ding Ming, who's the commander of the armed forces and is relieved from his duties. So this guy sort of just created chaos in the court in a remarkably short period of time, just through sheer desire. Just through desire and through accumulating power based on that desire. Um, and so then in 2 BC, uh, Consort Fu, who was the, the sort of main um, powerful woman behind the throne, dies. And all of her people start being replaced by Dong Shan's people. And so he becomes the main power behind the throne. Hmm. In 1 BC, three years after meeting the emperor, Dong is named commander of the armed forces and security chief of the capital. But he continued his lifelong practice of not really doing any of these jobs he was named to, but he held the emperor's favor just by hanging out with him all day. He just like laid around in the palace with the emperor and didn't do anything, and the emperor would just give him more and more stuff. Again, nice work if you can get it. Um, this is a uh, note from the records of the Han uh, as translated and cited by Hinch which uh, talks a little bit about court fashion at the time. So, quote, The courtiers competed to ornament themselves as seductive beauties and used artful speech to captivate. In contrast, Dong Shan wore a simple garment of misty plain silk. It draped on him like cicada wings. The emperor would enter the Martin's Breath quarters and order Dong Shan to change into a light, short-sleeved garment. Dong Shan did not use an extravagant belt or long skirt. The people of the palace were all apprehensive and alarmed about their sleeping together. End quote. That would suggest that he's, um, yeah, got some sort of natural charm that he doesn't require the, uh, the benefit of clothes to accentuate. I mean, the best kinds of charms don't require the benefit of clothes to accentuate them, that's what I would say. Um, and so this kind of indolent court life with the emperor is where we get the famous story of the passion of the cut sleeve which gives Emperor Hinch's book its title and which becomes a symbol of homosexual life in China. Quote, Emperor Ai was sleeping in the daytime with Dong Shan stretched out across his sleeve. When the emperor wanted to get up, Dong Shan was still asleep. Because he did not want to disturb him, the emperor cut off his own sleeve and got up. His love and thoughtfulness went this far, end quote. Uh, I've heard this before, but that's, yeah, that's cute. It is cute. Um, and this led to a revolution in men's court fashion because all the courtiers started cutting one sleeve off of their robes to show their own devotion to the emperor. <laughs> no way. <laughs> That's like that scene in, um, 
Mean Girls, where they they cut the nipple holes in her in her in her in her top, and then other girls will start wearing these nipple hole t shirts. Yes, exactly. I heard she does car commercials in Japan. <laughs> I heard her hair is insured for ten thousand um, dollars. But as with all other great passions like this, it couldn't last. So the emperor. Uh, suddenly, at the age of 24, in August of 1 BC, dropped dead without an heir. And this was not enough time for Dong to have built um, any kind of power base at court outside the emperor's favor. And besides, everyone hated him because he had spent the last few years hanging out with the emperor all day, not doing anything, causing chaos, and getting all these titles and money. And so... On his deathbed, the emperor tried to name Dong Shan the new emperor and handed him the imperial seals. The emperor, as you'll be shocked to know, didn't have any kind of heir. And, you know, as you'll be shocked to know, sounds like a joke because of the story we've just been telling. But in this society, it actually is a shock, right? There were plenty of emperors who had had, had children, named heirs, invested themselves in the process of reproducing the court. It wasn't necessarily the same kind of primogeniture system. Um, as in a European monarchy where the firstborn becomes king or becomes emperor. But I had not been invested in the heir development process, right? Which is both locating members of the imperial family, naming them, um, having your own children, all of that. He hadn't been doing any of it. Um, and so he names Dongshan Emperor, uh, hands him the imperial seals, but this choice has not gone through any of the formal processes um, that would theoretically be required in order to transfer imperial power. Um, and, and so clearly, clearly it wasn't a popular decision anyway. And it was not a popular decision. And so Empress Dowager Wang saw her chance. Um, she uh, took the seals, impeached Dong, and named her nephew Wang Mang Emperor. Dong was forced to commit suicide. The Dong family was exiled to a very far off place. They forfeited all of their wealth to the imperial treasury, and the Wang clan ended up taking over and bringing an end to the Western Han dynasty. And so Wang Mang established the Xin dynasty in 9 AD, and then in 25 AD, when he died, the Eastern Han took back over and ruled until 220 AD. And so this is a 400-year Han dynasty with an interruption of Wang Mang's brief Xin dynasty, which only exists because Emperor Ai tried to hand over all of China to his favorite twink. <laughs> so listeners to the show who are familiar with China at all might have figured this out already, but Han is not only the name of that dynasty, but it's the name adopted by modern China's majority ethnic group, by its language and by its written character system, right? So this is a period that's considered a golden age of Chinese history and is influential in Chinese self-conception in a roughly similar way that Rome at roughly the same time period is this kind of model for modern European self-conception. Um, but with the difference that there is a direct ethnic claim that can be claimed by a majority of people living in the region or by a plurality of people living in the region, right? So it's like Rome uh, for Europe, but there's an even stronger claim to the ethnic ties, right? And so if we think about how classical same-sex love became influential for later European homosexuals, there's a similar pattern in how Han sexuality ends up influencing later Chinese imperial and 
bourgeois and contemporary sexual identifications. Ah, fascinating. And so there's a review article uh, written by M.P. Lau and M.L. Ung, uh, which is a review of Sam Shasha's history of homosexuality in China. Um, and uh, they write, quote, Literary writers liked to refer to the stories of the catamite and of cut sleeves and split peaches and use such names as poetic euphemisms for what we now call male homosexuality. While expressions for lesbianism include golden orchid sisters and polishing mirrors. <laughs> That's a beautiful. And so you can see that these literary idioms from the Han court become the names of homosexuality. And they write that um, the affection of the Han emperor, I for uh, Dong Shan, meant that the emperor severed his sleeves, et cetera, et cetera. And the term cut sleeve, Duan Shu, became an expression for homosexual love. Right. In sort of later imperial China, um, as they write, quote, the degree of intimacy varied from favoritism and patronage with earthly awards and honors to companionship and play fellowship to enchantment with beauty, handsomeness, charm, seductiveness, adulation, to going to bed together, physical petting, oral and anal sex, betrothal, and adoption. In describing the attractiveness of the patronized, the writers almost invariably used feminine terms and often depicted embellishment with feminine adornments, portrayed narcissistic childlike features, and delineated aptitudes to please and to gain attention. There were only two or three instances that they write about where, quote, the emperors adored and had physical pleasures with warriors with coarse physiques, end quote. So, <laughs> so yeah, the, in some ways, like some remarkably similar sort of stereotypes and models as well that exist within the European model of homosexuality. Right. And then just as in Europe, uh, Anyone who can afford to emulate imperial lifestyles tries to. And so they write, quote, the mighty and the affluent and anyone who could afford it tried to build mini courts and mini dynasties with servants, serfs, hangers on, mistresses, actors and prostitutes, both male and female, and took pleasure in their servitude and syncophancy. Many of these attendants were recruited from the lower social classes or from among outcasts, vagabonds, slave convicts or prisoners, end quote. Tag yourselves. I'm either actors or hangers on. I'm vagabond. Um, in late imperial China, the historian Martin Huang argues in an article in the Journal of the History of Sexuality, relationships were more fluid and were based on friendship models, as well as the duality of older, younger, more or less power, active, passive. Um, and what's interesting is that he writes about a period um, in late imperial China, in Ming China in the 16, 1600s, in which... Quote, the dominant images to which authors repeatedly appealed were not those stereotypical traditions, figures in the tradition of male sexual love like Dongshan, but the exemplary friendship figures in history, highlighting at least the discursive commonality between male friendship and male-male sexual relationship, since both kinds of discourse appealed to the same models of friendship, end quote. And so this is interesting because just as in Europe, there's this complicating factor. It's not just that Dong Shan is the model for all homosexuality, but there are competing models that are coming in and out of fashion with different kind of historical and literary traditions. Um, and then it's only much later that... Um, uh, <coughs> are, you, are you okay, Hugh? 
Yeah, I'm just trying. I've, the cat is sat on my leg, and I've um, got pins and needles, but I don't want to move him. Just cut your leg off. <laughs> the uh, the legend of the cut trouser sleeve. Such was the love for Fauno. Such was the love for Fauno. Fauno is very cute. He does have eyes that launched a thousand treats. Yeah. Um, so in a Gender and History article um, called Epistemic Modernity and the Emergence of Homosexuality in China, Howard Chang talks about the kind of emergence of sexual science and discourses of sexuality in a very late imperial Qing dynasty and Republican China. And he argues, citing the work of Matthew Sommer, that it wasn't until the Qing dynasty in the 1700s that the regulation of sodomy in particular became a criminal act. And he writes, quote, this criminalization fundamentally reoriented the organizing principle for the regulation of sexuality in China. A universal order of the appropriate gender roles and attributes was granted some foundational value over previous status-oriented paradigms in which different status groups were expected to hold unique standards of familial and sexual morality. So, it's later, but it is still still does happen. This moment when um, the act, regardless of who you are or its context, becomes the moral or the legal question. Uh, but even then, he shows that it wasn't actually until the twentieth century that it was actually homosexuality that was the operative category, as opposed to what he describes as quote whether one's sexual behavior would potentially reverse the dominant script of social order. So again, there's, there's a lot of similarities around sort of patriarchal power in, in Europe. Yeah, and something I think is really interesting um, is this idea of acts that sort of threaten the social order. And I think that's an interesting way for us to think about why Dong Shan's story is so different from some of the other male favorites, right? Dong Shan is not just the favorite who sort of gets what is considered an appropriate amount of court attention and position, he rises so far and actually threatens to literally take over the dynasty. And so that becomes the big, the real big threat to power. And that's what has to be eliminated. Yeah. And even more recently, um, you see this idiom still being used and being turned in a really interesting way into an identity. Um, there's a really interesting article that I found by Ping Xuan Wang, a linguist who writes about how in Taiwan, the term cut sleeve has become sort of identity-ified. Um, so this, there was an, this was an idiom, the cut-sleeve idiom, uh, Wang writes, quote, bore the signification of homosexuality. However, traditionally, this was never a source of identification for ancient Chinese men who engaged in homosexual behaviors. Thus, the appropriation of the idiom is twofold. First, the Chinese label of homosexuality is approximated to the status of an identity label, which then fits into the intransitive I am construction for I am cut sleeve, a coming out speech act to be acknowledged in the U.S. context. In this sense, the expression is not just a literal translation, but a transformation of how one understands homosexuality from what one does to what one is. And so this has been, I mean, there's absolutely no way um, in one episode of this show to try to talk about the entire reception history of classical Chinese same-sex eroticism and how that's affected modern-day sexuality in China. But I think it is really interesting to think about how these stories matter and to whom they matter and why they matter. And the way that they're taken up both by Chinese people across the vast stretch of history 
between Han Dynasty China and now. Once again, we're talking about a stretch of history as vast as from Rome to now. Um, and how sexuality is spoken about um, and thought about in these terms. And then also to go back again to uh, why Brett Hinch is telling the story and, and to why we're telling this story, to think about why telling this story matters to us. And I don't really have a pat conclusion here, except to say that I hope that many, many more translations of um, and um, discussions of uh, sexuality, both ancient and uh, early modern and contemporary from China are translated, are published, are discussed, are circulated, and become a part of the way that we think about the history of sexuality truly globally. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, that really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon, uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if, um, if you prepare paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's... Um if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now on with the show. Well, thanks, Ben. That's a really fascinating um, story. Um, the whole context and the specifics, especially of the of the cut sleeve. I guess one question I was thinking when I was was listening to you is: Was do you think there's something intrinsic in the nature of the relationship that was different to other um, to other emperors and their favorites? You know, did there seem to be some sort of, from what you've read, like a, an intensity or a level of passion, or perhaps even like a sense of of love or just some something different in the mode that made it seem more threatening than perhaps other, other favorites or is it more as you're sort of saying to do with the role well i think i mean so we have two stories of favorites that we told in this episode um in that in this broad spectrum of western han 10 emperors more than 10 favorites and Deng Tong and Dong Shan, I think, stand out because both of them achieved extreme kinds of power and privilege, which started to take their rise from being a kind of sideshow or acceptable, um, acceptable part of imperial life into actually threatening or challenging systems of power that were ultimately more powerful than them. 
um, and that were ultimately more powerful than the power that they were able to build up, right? Um, what is interesting, and Hinch writes this, is that this is not particularly different from the ways that uh, other kinds of favored female concubines would build power and privilege at the court, would be named to high roles, would be named uh, consorts, um, some of whom would be named empresses, right? Um, and they would then get not only enormous amounts of power for themselves, but also power for their people, right? Um, and in the case of the empresses or the consorts would often try to then um, agitate to insert their sons as emperor. And so this is a very similar kind of uh, development of power, but um, the difference with the male favorites is that it's like that old joke about um, how, you know, gays can't have kids, but we keep trying, right? <laughs> like you're, you're not going to get your son installed as emperor, or you're not going to get your, your sons installed in positions that, that can really protect you. And so I think sometimes maybe the power is shorter lived. Mm. Uh, and then in these two cases, we're also looking at spectacular rises, which I think no matter who you're talking about are often encountered by or accompanied by or followed by um, spectacular falls. Uh, you know, you, you really can only rise so far so fast in this kind of backstabbing imperial system um, in any right. time and place, right? Before someone yeah. ends up taking exception. I think, I think the, the, um, the sort of meteoric rise is always the subject of suspicion as well, that it's somehow unjust or unearned. Like obviously the whole system is unjust to a degree, but um, do you think maybe right, that also suggests... I mean, these systems depend on justifying unjust yeah of course, of, power, of course right so you have to you have to pretend that this is not unjust and you have to pretend that this is all the result of um some kind of divine favor or some kind of um, um uh, 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 intellectual achievement or or what have you and so uh someone rising that quickly ends up calling that whole thing into question because you just see how fast it is and you see how totally un like justified it is right and i think the excuse that people reach to in that situation is it's some kind of you know bewitchment it's like it's like um uh out of the the the, the person is perhaps like out of their mind in some way in, in 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 promoting this person is there any sense of that in the story that that there was a feeling that i was making these somehow bad decisions or the decisions were sort of out of his control or out of influence and that was one of the reasons for getting rid of him yeah, there was definitely a sense that he was not a strong emperor and that he was not able to navigate between the different elements of court power and not able to kind of push his own agenda and was being kind of controlled by all of these different uh, forces. Yeah. Another story as old as time, then. Another story as old as time. Well, thanks that, Ben. Um, if people are interested in reading more about this, or, I mean, you talked about some of the sources at the start, but what are some of the sources you use to, to, to research this episode? Well, um, there is obviously Brett Hinch's book, Passions of the Cut Sleeve, which we've spoken about a lot on the show. Um, there's that interview with the historian Sam Shasha, which I think is really interesting. A lot of stuff we couldn't get into on the, on the show. Most of the interview is not about his historical work, but about his activist work in Hong Kong. Um, and how that developed over time and how he started writing history as an activist project and various kinds of gay lib pamphlets. Um, and it was really, really fascinating to read. I, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, 
there is that um, article by uh, M.P. Lau and M.L. Ung, which is the review essay of Samshasha's History of Homosexuality in China. Um, there is uh, Martin Huang's uh, article about um, late imperial China and homosexual relationships, and Howard Chang's article, Epistemic Modernity and the Emergence of Homosexuality in China, um, and a few more sources, uh, all of which are linked in the notes. Thank you so much. Well, if you want to know more about the show or listen to other episodes or to buy T-shirts or to check out our book that came out last year, Bad Gays are Homosexual History, you can find all that online at badgayspod.com or you can follow us, follow us on social media at badgayspod as well. My name's Hugh Lemmy. You can follow me at Hugh Lemmy. You can follow Fauno on my Instagram. And you can follow me at Ben Writes Things. So until, until next, next week, week. Bye. Bye. Bad. Bad, 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 bad,